0: Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the UCL Careers podcast. My name's Jo Budd, and I'm a careers consultant here at UCL Careers. This episode provides an opportunity to hear from health professionals and those training to work directly with patients and clients as part of our health-themed week. During this discussion, you will hear from a GP, a midwife, a current UCL medical student, and a highly specialised speech and language therapist. So let's get into it.
1: So yeah, my name is Emma-Louise and I'm a a speech and language therapist and um, I just thought today what I would do, just like Nikki said, I'm going to tell you guys a bit about myself and my career so far. I just thought I'd tell you a bit about what my day looks like Um, and then obviously just take into account this year has been a bit of a different year for all of us. Um, So yeah, um, I qualified in 2013 from the University of Ulster. I then had knee surgery that meant I couldn't work straight away so I came to UCL and I did a master's degree in neuroscience language and communication which has very much fed my uh, want of learning about brains I have to say if anything's wrong with the brain I'm super interested in it Um, and so I find myself then working a lot in neurology um, and I've worked in a lot of different places, some big hospitals in London. Primarily I've worked in London, but recently moved to Wales, which has been a bit of a, a culture shock, I have to say, but that's a, something I'll come to in a minute. Um and yeah, so I actually I sent out a tweet like about 18 months ago about my day, and it was just really well received. So I just thought I would tell you guys a little bit about those sort of patients that I would see and, and things that we do. So um this is a bit of a sort of a day in the life kind of, of of what I would normally do in a day. Um, so the first person, this, this was an actual day um, that I went to see this um, woman who is 53, had had a stroke, big massive stroke, standing at a bus stop one day, and she couldn't really talk anymore. She'd been in a coma for a long time and I was helping her just communicate with her eyes. And I went, went into her room talking away, as I normally would do, and she doesn't say anything. As per usual and I'm fit getting something in my bag and next of all she just turns she just goes I can hear the words I'm fine and I was like excuse me um, and she looked as shocked as I did so I ran her in the nursing home telling everyone about this. Um, I then went to see someone else who has got trouble it's a guy who's 27 was in a road traffic accident um, he's what we kind of call it walking wounded. So he looks fine. He's like a big Eastern European guy. Um, but when he starts talking, oh my God, like you cannot stop him. He just talks and talks and talks and talks. And so my job is to help him stop doing that. So teaching him how to take cues and things like that. Um, and I walked into his house and he just says to me, so today I thought about killing myself. And I was like, okay, so needless to say, we didn't talk about his talking problems that day um i then went from there um to see another lady who's got dementia she turned 94 that day um and i was seeing her because her swallowing is not so good anymore and that's something that happens in dementia and i was explaining this to her husband you know she's gonna start have to eating a pureed diet and um he actually left the room and i was like what is going on and he came back and he said to me you know um, I. this is my wife of 70 years and this is just another thing to slip away. And so this is sort of the conversation that we, we had to have. Um, so obviously I'm, I'm going up and down a lot in this day. I then went on to see someone else who's a 33 year old guy who um, had a hypoxic brain injury, which is he had had a pancreas transplant because he's got diabetes and he unfortunately died on the table for about 12 seconds. And from that, he cannot read and write anymore. Um, So this is the first time I met this guy, and I was like, "So man, like, what do you want to do? Like, what, what, what can I help you do?" And he was like, "I need to be able to use Tinder." He was like, "I cannot read and write." He was like, "How am I supposed to meet anybody if I cannot read and write?" So that's that's what I I was like, "Cool, all right, let's let's work on Tinder." So we did, and it was so you guys know he did actually get a date not too long after that. Um, And then the last person I saw in that day was a person who has got motor neurone disease. And I basically, we spent the afternoon helping him put um, like beautiful messages to his wife into this machine that we have. It's kind of like a Stephen Hawking type machine that except we put his voice into it um, to talk like to his wife about like, I love you and you light up my life and just stuff that would like make your heart melt. So yeah so it's not the king's speech don't get me wrong like that's what everyone seems to think that I do is the king's speech but it's it's a pretty roller coaster day right you know like it's it's got a lot of ups and downs Um, but I have to say I love my job I really love I'm very privileged to get so fabricated into people's lives and I, I work in the community a lot so it means I go in and out to people's houses so we're like we are like in your life a lot and I I'm just so grateful for that. I, I love that about, about this job. Obviously this year has been next level compared to, to that. So um, just to sort of give you guys an insight to what this year looks like, you know, we had, um, I watched my team, which is we normally spend our days seeing people like that. We changed into what we call a discharge to assess team. So our job just became get people out of hospital get them home like, and stop them going back into hospital. We changed all our working to virtual. So you can imagine for someone who's got communication problems, that's that's super tricky. Or then even going to their house with a mask on, that becomes super tricky. Um, and I, I also, I was given the opportunity <laughs> to be redeployed as a complex discharge lead in Charing Cross Hospital. so. That was very much about like helping the hospital, stopping beds being blocked, getting people out as soon as possible. Um, So I learned a lot of skills this year in flexibility and resilience and empathy, um, which, you know, have really stood to me. Um, And yeah, and now I've just moved to Wales in the middle of a pandemic. I'm not sure that was the best decision of my life, but I'm quite happy here. But I have to say, I've gone from working in central London where everyone is pretty technolog, like, you know, there's a lot of money in London Um, my team we all had our own laptops we were able to work from home the team I work in now has got six laptops for 18 of us Um, and a lot of my patients and people that I work with they don't have the technology in their home I work in one of the most deprived areas in the UK now so we have to physically go and see them because they don't have the technology to to work with us in that way so that's been a super interesting point out of this year Um, but yeah and just the Very last thing I will say about working in healthcare, Um, I graduated eight years ago and I find now in my life, a lot of my friends who are, who didn't necessarily go into healthcare are starting to kind of feel, they're asking me now, how do I become a physio? How do I become an OT? How do I become a nurse? Like, how does that work? Because this year, one of them was like, like, I never felt so redundant. Whereas I tell you not, and everyone else on this panel will say they were very busy this year. (laughs) Um, So it's super rewarding. And I personally am super excited about where the rest of my career is going to take me. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what these guys have been up to as well. Um, But yeah, speech therapy is cool. Be a speech therapist.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Emma. That was fantastic. Really, really enjoyed hearing from you. That was. Really, really interesting. So, thank you ever so much. Um, Brilliant. Okay, Um, can I move on to Doreen, please? Doreen, would you like to give us a a career bit of career history and explain a little bit about your current role for us, please?
3: Sure. Um, Good evening, guys. My name is Doreen. Um, I am a midwife at a London-based hospital. Um, I qualified seven years ago, so I went from A levels straight to uni to study my midwifery um, degree um so i've moved i've worked in three hospitals so far um i started off in Kingston um, hospital where i was there for about four years and i think from there i was just finding my feet as i newly qualified then i went on to do some um caseloading for vulnerable moms so i was working mostly with teenagers um, who may have mental health issues who are in domestic violence so i was caseloading them from the beginning to the end of their pregnancies afterwards so I decided to take that a bit further into another hospital in a more senior role. Um, worked there for a while then I left and now work in a really big hospital in southwest London. I'm currently the postnatal and antenatal ward manager um, so my day really is um, clinical um, twice a week and I also work in terms of managing the team, um, managing staff, um, sickness, Um, I'm a counsellor at times, (laughs) Um, so my role just, you know, making sure the team's fine, making sure there's day-to-day activities, having enough staff to um, support the area. I'm still excited to see where else I can go in my career because I'm still quite early, still quite young um, in my career in the NHS, so I'm still looking for new ways where I can develop my role um, and how I can help mothers a bit more. Um, so my day with, at the moment is not as <laughs> exciting as Emma's because I, I did community work for about two years when I was caseloading, um, but I haven't done that for almost two years now and I do miss it sometimes just going into homes and just spending time with mums because in the hospitals everything's sort of time constraint, um, you don't get to give them as much time as you can, do whereas in the home You know, you plan your day, I can be there for an hour or two hours if I have to, so I do miss that part of community, so I'm looking into that again. But yeah, that's my day. Um, I do still do my clinical um, jobs, as I said, I still deliver babies, Um, I'm still counting down my deliveries (laughs) as I go, Um, and that's the most rewarding part of the job, is just spending time with mums, welcoming a newborn into the world. Being the first phase they see when they come into the world is quite cool, Um, so yeah, I do enjoy doing that. Um, Yeah, that's me.
2: Okay. Doreen, that's that's fantastic. Can you tell me, do you know how many um deliveries you've done?
3: Some 190 at the moment.
2: Fantastic. Wow. Yeah.
3: <laughs> that's, that's absolutely
2: amazing. That's brilliant. Thank you ever so much. That's that's wonderful. Good to hear from you. Um so I can see uh, let's have a look. Uh, Yanja, if I could ask you to unmute yourself and give us a, an overview of your um, career so far and your career journey that would be fantastic.
4: Um, so hi everyone, good evening. My name is Yandra Chilumbata. Um, also slightly different to Emma and Doreen, I'm still actually a student so I'm a final year graduate entry medical student um, at King's at the moment But I did my uh, Bachelor of Science in Biomedical Science at King's, graduated in 2015, and then went on to study a master's at UCL um, and finished that in 2016. Um, And I'm sure just like a lot of you guys who are attending this talk, you might be at a bit of a crossroad at what to do next. And I I certainly felt that. I didn't know whether something like medicine was what I wanted to go into or whether it, it was research. So I kind of took that year during my master's as an opportunity to try and figure out what I really wanted to do, what I liked, what I didn't like. And so that kind of led me on to becoming a research technician for a year at UCL, thinking that research was what I wanted to do. And of course, it's a very admirable job, but as I was doing it, I had this nagging feeling that was like, I'm just not sure this is for me. And I think if you have a feeling like that, you have to really kind of take it on board and listen to yourself. So I, I had that nagging feeling that, you know what, let's let's give medicine a go as a graduate. So I applied, I got in, and just yesterday I found out that I've passed my final exams. So I'm unofficially a doctor, which is really exciting. Um, and so really what I wanted to say was, you know, more rather, there are different points in our career where you may feel unsure as to what you want to do next. And I would encourage anyone to try and really seek opportunities that might you know, pique their interest or see what they want to do next. Um, so that's really kind of where I took it. But as Emma mentioned, things have been very different for the last year. And as medical students, we took a really big hit. Um, you know, Temporarily, all hospitals stopped taking us, as you can imagine, but we still needed to fulfill a certain number of hours in order to graduate. So our medical school basically said, you know what, this is a situation. We want you to get out there, do what you need to do, but be safe. So I had a GP placement and a lot of that basically basically became phone consultations, which is so tough to do, especially when you get patients saying, oh, I have a rash. And you're saying like, oh, tell me about it. And they're like, I don't know, it's kind of big. And I'm like, wow, God, I really don't know what, I don't know what they're talking about. So it's been really adapting and know a lot of it has really stemmed upon and I'm sure all of you hate it like you know you know communication skills how are we going to talk to our patients over the phone how are we going to manage the more critically patients who might not be able to access hospital normally but now even more so Um, so that's been a real change in the last year especially with GP placement and then we've had hospital placement too Um, and a lot of our electives have been cancelled so mine got pushed back a year or not a year sorry a month more rather um, and so, because I've had so much free time now, um, I've actually been working as a vaccinator in North London as part of the mass vaccination program. And that's been really exciting. Um, just seeing a lot of patients coming through the door. Of course, everything's really safe. We're, we're tested every day to make sure that no harm comes to us as well. Part of the job being in a front lining position. So, it's just been a really great experience. And I think if anyone wants to explore the medical sector, you know, even starting as a volunteer, would be a really good starting point to see if this is something you want to do. And then obviously talking to people. So if anyone wants to send me an email, then of course, feel free. Um, I just wanted to show one thing before I left, which was probably the highlight of my um vaccinating. Oh, you're going to have to give me one second. That's fine, don't worry. Take your Okay, so. As part of the vaccination, um, we had Sadiq Khan come join our um, vaccination site, which was the Morris House group practice in North London. So he came and said, hi, he spoke to a lot of our staff, um, and there's me drawing up the vaccine. Um, and then I was asked by ITV to give a really small interview, which I did. So if you go onto the May of London page, you can probably find that tweet. Um, it's just a little bit embarrassing watching myself back, but I'm just really, really grateful to be part of a really exciting course. So that's that's essentially me. Thank you for listening, everyone.
2: Oh, lovely. Thank you so much, Yandra. That was really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, it's fantastic and well done uh-huh. on the That's fantastic. Was it yesterday you found out? I found out yesterday. Yeah. 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 Really, really good. Good news. Brilliant. Lovely. OK, um, we have Dr. Amrita with us. Dr Amrita, lovely to see you. Um, If I could ask you to give us uh, an overview of your career and a little bit of uh, career history and to let us know um, what you're currently doing, please. Thank you.
5: Sure, of course, well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me here. Um, It's a real pleasure to be back at UCL, which is my alma mater. Um, So it's been quite a few decades since I've been back. Um, So thank you so much for having me. Um, So firstly, I suppose my career started out very, um, uh, very separate from medicine and um, I wasn't actually planning on doing a medical degree first of all. So I started out um, at UCL doing a degree in massive management studies and um, I was very dedicated to that. Um, I did an internship uh, at an investment bank, sorry not an internship, I had a mentorship at an investment bank and um much like uh, Yanja I just had this feeling that this wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing and um, I had a great mentor um, and he taught me a lot of um, ins and outs of the business and I think I learned so much from him but my main takeaway was I don't think I'm in the right place um, and I was very very privileged because um, I had very supportive parents who understood that that maths and management studies wasn't probably the right fit for me so i completed my degree i was very lucky i did very well at it um but i was searching for something different um and so i took a year out i decided that medicine was the right path for me i did all the necessary um bits and pieces to get my work experience up luckily i had the right a levels um by some uh, fortuitous nature uh, but um So then I applied to do medicine and I uh, went over the pond, uh, over the river, should I say, to um, Kings. So I didn't come back to UCL. I went to um, an alternative medical school uh, across the south of the river. So a lot of my friends were quite upset with me that I didn't stay with my alma mater. Um, But I thought it was important to get a varied um, education. So I completed my degree. I I was different to Yanja though I didn't do the graduate entry. I did a five year entry. Uh, And the reason I did that was because my view at that point was that um, I didn't feel the rush. Um, I thought that actually by the time I finish my studies, I would be kind of in my late 20s. And that was enough time for me to be able to have a good um, period of time to be able to enjoy the holidays, to be able to really enjoy the elective and not really cram in the studies. so that was my perspective uh fast forward did f1 f2 and during my um gp training i took maternity leaves and um the reason i'm bringing that in is because i think there's this perception medicine that actually if you take a step off the journey um you're going to get left behind and i'm here to say that you don't Um the perception is there the stigma is there but um If you, if if you want to do something, I'm I'm a strong um, advocate for you need to take the journey that's right for you and you need to do what's right for you in your life and not be concerned about um, what other people might say about that, um, as long as it's the right path for you. Um, And so I took uh, two maternity leaves during my gp training So what should have been a three-year training scheme took six and a half years um and the benefit for me was that i was able to um really consider where i wanted to go in my life and what i wanted to do with my career um, and i think general practice is a wonderful profession and i'm really proud to be a general practitioner um but it also allowed me to explore other options as well so i was able to um complete a certification and a diploma in occupational medicine, which I think is really, really key to being um, a general practitioner, but it's also given me other skills as well in being able to conduct occupational medicine clinics. Um, I've done a certification in acupuncture as well. So for me, holistic medicine is really important. It might not be important to everybody. Um, And the beautiful thing about medicine is that um, there are so many different specialties. Um, There are so many aspects of medicine that might interest you. So there's OBS and Guiney in which you might work with other allied healthcare professionals. There's um, ENT where you might work with um, speech and language therapists Um, and it's part of being this whole spectrum of allied healthcare professionals which is really really interesting. So for me um, I wanted to go down the kind of um, holistic care route should we say um, and really looking at people in the context of their lives as opposed to specializing in one specific area. Um, so that led me to the different things that I did. Um, and now the journey that I've been on has kind of positioned me as a, a well-being specialist, should we say? Um, so I'm currently doing a master's in applied positive psychology and coaching psychology. I'm a wellbeing and mental fitness coach. Um, I am a GP, I'm a clinical GP, um, but over the last year, I've done a lot of work with doctors, uh, before that as well, but over the last year specifically, I've been working a lot with doctors and allied healthcare professionals to support their wellbeing during the pandemic. Um, so I would say that's kind of my journey, a very um, prolonged and procrastinated way of explaining my journey. But essentially my messages is, is Your journey is your journey. Um, You don't have to necessarily follow the route that medicine has carved out for you because training schemes are quite regimented. That might be the course that you want to take, and that's brilliant. But if you want to veer off that or if you want to carve your own path there's as much virtue and there's there's as much value in that and if that's something that you want to do just because it's the path less trodden it doesn't make it less valuable or less beautiful and so essentially that's all all I wanted to impart today essentially that um, everyone's journey is as important as, as the other.
2: Fantastic thank you ever so much Dr Amrita it's really really interesting to hear your points and and the, the career journey, um, and just sort of understanding, as you say, that everybody's career journey might be different and it's all, it's all, it, you know, everybody's different, but that's fine being different. Absolutely wonderful. Okay, so we'll just start with a few questions from myself and then um, we'll go on to do some questions from students in, in a while. Um, I just wanted to touch on um, Emma, I know you mentioned, um, uh, you mentioned that the pandemic, obviously, um, and Dr. Amriti mentioned it too. Doreen, I just wanted to ask you, uh, how have you found it? Obviously, everybody here, you know, in sort of very frontline or dealing with people, uh, roles. How have you found the changes for yourself? I mean, it must have been a challenge.
3: It's been very challenging. Um, I think more so for me, just because I deal with staffing. um, Okay. yeah. So to cover the wards. I think I can come on shift and I have only two midwives um, and trying to find uh, midwives to cover patient care. So I work on a 32-bedded postnatal ward and two midwives are just not enough. Um, and most of the time it's because they're isolating or they've contracted the um, um, coronavirus themselves. So it's been quite difficult. I mean, recently they've been redeploying some midwives to work on the ITU ward. So again, providing mm-hmm. emotional support for the midwives that have been exposed to um Working night too, they haven't been for a very long time, so it's been quite challenging for myself too, because I have to support my staff as well as look after my own well-being um, and my mm. own challenges with it. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been quite difficult, it's been quite challenging, but I'm really proud of how everyone's sort of pulled their way through. Everyone's been we're looking out for each other. Everyone's just checking in on each other how we're doing, um, and the patients. A lot of the patients are grateful <laughs> coming in and knowing that we know we are doing our best for them. But yeah, it has been quite challenging. Um, a lot of That's tears, cool. <laughs> a lot of stress. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's it's been quite good to see everyone. So yeah,
2: okay. absolutely, absolutely, totally, absolutely.
3: Okay, um, maybe I could put this um
2: this question to to the t- uh, to the panel. Um, what would you say are the the things that you enjoy the most about your role, and what are the, what would you say the things that you find the most challenging? That could go to to any of us uh, any of the panel here who feel like talking about that and um, I'll go first if that's okay yeah absolutely thank you and um, so the
5: things I enjoy the most um are working with people essentially um so during the whole of this whole spectrum of my career the thing that has really centered me is people And I know that might sound really trite. It might sound really um, like a a really throwaway comment, but actually I'm really passionate about people and that centers me and that's why I do what I do. Um, And it doesn't have to be in in, um, a patient facing role every day. It doesn't have to be in a colleague facing role every day. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, in a really conforming nature but working with people and working in a way either whether it be in management leadership education or clinical sense um working with people knowing that actually what you're doing is providing some benefit for people either in a small context or a larger concentric context is really what grounds mm. me, and help me so i'd say that's what i find really rewarding about my career and, and the challenges i would say at the present moment are um working in isolation um, mm at the present moment um I think that you get so much energy just from being in the same room as somebody yeah um, and just by having somebody's physical presence and just that whole um generative thought that oh, might my, my working in the same office as of somebody or um you know just bouncing emails or um you know it, it takes time to send an email to somebody it takes time to construct the email and send it and then get a reply back and there's just a whole chain of events that occurs in that um, whereas if you're in the same room as somebody or if you're having a coffee with somebody that whole generative thought just happens so naturally and you bounce our ideas off of each other so I'd say that that's probably in the, heart, one of the one of the hardest things I mean there's a whole spectrum of trauma that's happened in the last year um, which I don't want to deny or negate, um, but to try and take the positives out of this, that,
2: that would be one of the
5: small hardships, I would say.
2: Absolutely, totally. Um, really good points there. Um, would anybody else like to, to comment on that one?
1: I think just I have to say one of the things that I just love about my job probably touching on what Emerita said as well is just being part of a team like being being around people being around like the people that we work with um it just lights up my day like you know just getting to do sessions with other professionals and getting to work together it just you form a real bond with some of the people that you're working with and they don't need to be in your immediate team. Like that, you know, I have a GP that I work with that I just love having to ring him. Like it just makes my day if I have to have a chat with him. So that really makes it really awesome. Um, Yeah. And I, I, I also actually probably would mirror the similar challenges is that like that has been taken away from us a lot at the moment. So I, on one hand, I'm so excited when I get to do a bit of joint working and equally, I'm super sad when I, I don't get to see people. It, you know, it really takes a lot of your energy. Um, having to do this all day, particularly if you're running like a video clinic, doing this all day is real draining. Um, yeah. So,
2: yeah. So how do you how do you manage that, Emma? How do you?
1: Well, I've been doing a lot of vocal hygiene lessons with my entire team, like teaching everyone how to look after your voice properly. Um, but it's just doing like taking 15 minutes to go and do yoga. Like literally I'll just like, I've got really good dictating my notes now (laughs) into my phone and I just walk away then and I'll just do yoga for 15 minutes. I constantly have water beside me so that my throat doesn't give out. Um, And sometimes I'll just schedule a call. I could send an email, but you know what? I'm just going to call just so I can have a chat with someone just kind of Mm -hmm. feeling a bit more human and normal and connected. Um, Yeah they yeah. probably the main. Absolutely. Thing.
2: Talk to Amrita, how, how do you manage that as well? Sorry, I should have put that to you before. How do you feel?
5: Um Sorry. my keyboard of... was a bit sticky, so I was trying No, to no, don't
2: it. worry, don't um, worry.
5: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. How do I manage? Um so I'm not gonna lie, I find it very um oh, well, how should I say this? Um so I'm I'm multitasking a lot at the moment um I'm homeschooling I'm working Mm. from home I'm working everywhere so I think it's um much more difficult to preserve um activities um like that but I would say that I do try to um and I say that I definitely do at the end of the day so I have to have a not have to but i can do it when the quiet when the house is quiet when i know that there are people who are who are asleep when i know that i'm not going to be disturbed and that's when i'm able to do that because otherwise um there's just no point because when you ask for um time uh, to not be disturbed you know that that's exactly when you're going to be disturbed so even if you put a note on the door that says do not disturb you know that there's going to be a little rap at the door that says can i have your attention at this moment in time so um uh for me it's always kind of at the end of the day and it's just kind of a a way to wind down whether it be um reading a couple of quotes reading a mindfulness book or just um chatting to a loved one um i just try to find a way to to wind down at the end of the day um but i think it's really important to what i've say said it's really important to find your own way to do that mindfulness might not work for everybody um Breathing techniques, vocal techniques might not work for everybody. Yoga might not work for everybody. Um, You have to find what works for you and what, what fits you and your routine. Um, But I think what I will say is trial and error, just try, keep trying, keep thinking that actually if this doesn't fit with you and you don't feel that this is giving you any um, rest and recuperation, just try something different, Um, but keep going until you find what works for you in essence is what I'm
2: trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, So, Let me put this to to everybody. Uh, Thinking back, um, perhaps when you first started, Dr. Marita, perhaps Doreen as well, and Emma, what would you say would be the the sort of key insights, sort of transferable skills, thinking back, you know, what key sort of thoughts would you put forward from perhaps study um, and going into, into your careers?
1: Standing when I qualified... What empathy really meant um, and it's been a re I, I think this is something that we learn as healthcare professionals to really draw lines around because you get into healthcare because you really want to help people and you want to you know do good things um, and you get this real spectrum of too much empathy is not good because you get so drawn into people's lives and you feel so bad for them you feel so sad for you know people see us when there's something wrong so you have to be you know there's going to be something there and then the flip side of that is you can't have no empathy because people will think you're horrible and a robot you can't just like you know shoot things down and so for me if I could kind of give advice to anyone going into it to know that that is always going to be a bit of a a thing is like knowing how much empathy you need and what a, an integral part of being a healthcare professional it is and how you have to look after your own mental health from that respect and finding that balance of empathy is is real important I mm. think just for me particularly I worked with palliative pa- um, people for a long time and that really that one caught me off guard for a long time um but yeah empathy totally key <laughs>
5: Yes, absolutely. I'm absolutely sure of that. I'm happy to jump in here if you don't mind. Sorry, yes, please. I was do. Being quiet before because I, I, I was, un, I, I was aware that I had the last answer, so I didn't want to. Don't to take
2: worry. That. No, that's absolutely fine. Um, so
5: I think I might, I might say something that's quite um disparate to what Emma said. I don't think you can have enough empathy in medicine, um, in allied healthcare professions. Um, I think that empathy is something that's really, really key in our profession. And I think that that's what allows us to connect with our patients, it allows us to connect with um, our ability to um, be good healthcare professionals, to provide care, compassion and support to people. I think what we need to do as human beings is draw boundaries around where we understand where our role finishes as a professional person and where the line begins as a personal entity and so having a personal entity and a personal identity and a professional identity is really really important and having safeguards in place to boundary those is really key and um, and at times they might slip at times you might be giving um part of your personal self to a patient and i don't think and the reason i say this is because i've, I've reflected on this a lot over my profession um and I don't think this is a. I don't think this is the right answer. I think this is the answer for me. And and as I said, this isn't to contradict Emma because that's Emma's answer and that's right for Emma. And Doreen will have a different answer. And Yonja will have a different answer for her. For me, this is this is just what's right for my journey. Um. So I believe that we need to be. I need to be boundaryed in my personal and professional identity in order to in order to protect myself so that I'm giving a lot to my patients but I'm not taking a lot home. If that makes sense, so that I'm protecting myself and I'm protecting my family, I'm protecting my loved ones from the burden that that might give me. And that's why you have to have good protection mechanisms in place. You have to understand what works for you, how you um, support your own mental health, how you support your emotional health and your psychological health as well, because these are all three separate entities. I think we quite often lump these things together. We lump well-being together and say well-being synonymous with mental health it is not these are all separate entities and our physical health is also different and they're all intertwined they're all related because they're all part of us but they are different entities and I think the more time we spend with ourselves the more we connect with ourselves the more we reflect on ourselves our professional practice our personal being the more we learn about ourselves um, and what we need and what we need to grow blah 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 Um, but the point is for me is that actually I don't think there is too much empathy. Um, I think that's what makes us really good healthcare professionals. I think what needs to be done is understanding where we draw the lines and where we draw the boundaries and how we protect ourselves from that. and if there is a balance in, or, or if the balance tips the wrong way where you feel that you're actually not coping because you are too empathic, then you just need to kind of up your safety mechanisms and up the support that you have um, and maybe take time out from clinical practice in order to try to recuperate. Um, I hope that's helpful for anybody out there.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Marisa. It's it's really interesting how you talk about the boundaries. Found that fascinating. So thank you very much. Um uh, Yandra would you feel that you have any thoughts on on that? Um, yeah, I was just going to say, whilst
4: I haven't started my career and I am a student, mm. I think the biggest take-home message that I've learned in the last twelve months has been to be adaptable. Um, mm. All of us have had to adapt in different ways, in different shapes and forms to our job roles, even even whether that's your personal life or your work life. And I think. Whilst you may not think you are adaptable when push comes to shove, I think being able to adapt is a really important skill that all of us can take away from being a student to then hopefully what I can say, oh, I am adaptable in when I, you know, fully start qualifying and working in August. And I think that's really important. Um, You know, if even if someone says to you, OK, can you do you know how to work a computer system? Can you come help me book these patients? And you say, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Fantastic. I'll be there. I think being able to, to know that sometimes your roles can change um, in order to, to be able to support the team, I think that's really important. So if you can put yourself in a position where that's possible, I think that's really good.
3: Yeah. And I would just like to add being mm. communication and being honest. Um, I think we often forget how important communication is, um, sometimes just a simple um, going back to a patient, explaining something to them in a way where they can understand. Or if you're completely busy, just saying, look, I know you're waiting. I'm really sorry. This is what I'm doing. And it's what we're trying to get things in place. But oftentimes we forget to communicate back to patients and just say, you know, we're here. Um, I hear you. I'm doing something. It's taken a while, but, you know, you're still on my mind. And just being honest with patients too. I've learned that. In my role as a manager, that <laughs> you have to be honest, um, and patients do um, appreciate the honesty, even if it's not what they want to hear. They do appreciate us being honest with them. Um, and just the last point with what um, Doctor Amara, is it Amara, Amrita? Amrita. So, um, said about um, empathy, and I think I learned that the hard way um, when I was newly qualif- newly qualified as a midwife, and a mum experienced a loss. Um, and I remember someone saying to me, "You're not allowed to cry," and I said. Why can't I cry? Because this is quite emotional. And I remember just sharing a tear and mum said, I'm I'm so glad, you know, you felt <laughs> almost like you felt the pain I did. It shows me that you really did care. So I think it's just knowing the boundaries, but it's okay to cry sometimes. Things happen. Um, so yeah, you can't ever show too much empathy, it's just knowing when to draw the line.
2: Wow, Doreen, that's 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 amazing. Um, that's that must have been such a Oh, I, I don't even know how to ex- explain that, actually. I, I, words are not coming out of my mouth, but I'd say that that must have been quite an experience for you. So thank you so much for sharing something so private. Um, OK. Um, you touched on it a moment ago, actually, Doreen, uh, sort of t- communicating um, with patients. How do you, um, do you do you have to manage patient expectations? Do you find that something? they expect a lot and then you sort of touched on it a little bit but would you say that you have to do that on a a regular basis
3: reflecting back
2: on your career
3: yeah in the last um so much more in the last um year and a bit um in my current role so part of my role um deals with patient complaints um on the ward a lot especially on the postnatal ward because moms most of them they have a really nice one-to-one experience on the labor ward and then they come up to the place new to ward where they might have to share a bed. Um, I'm in a room with other women, or they're expected to be out of the hospital at a certain time, or babies not feeding as they expected babies to, or you know the baby has not read or put in the time they wanted to. So yeah, I've had to manage patient expectations a lot. And I did struggle with it to begin with, because I kinda had my midwife hat on rather than also thinking about the patients. Um, and what, what did we fail in terms of communicating with them that you Know as you're coming to the postnatal world, it would be completely different to the antenatal period or the label. Would um, one midwife will be sharing with eight other people, <laughs> so really giving yeah. them that, communicating that, yeah, your midwife is shared among different people, you won't get that one to one care as you wanted to, um, and also just being um, as empathetic as I can with your expectations as well as supporting my colleagues knowing what's happened what's happened on the ward. so yeah there's a lot of patient expectations um
2: yeah but yeah. yeah and perhaps it's changed a little bit over this year i don't know has it has it been, <laughs> <It's> been
3: worse <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a lot worse because patients don't want to stay in hospital anymore so the expectation is there's a pandemic I need to go home, whereas in, yes, there's a pandemic, but you're not well, or your baby yeah. <laughs> is not fit to go home. So I think there is, a, we've had a lot more complaints during the pandemic than before. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it's all done with communications and meeting patient expectations and just helping them understand that if this was any other time, yes, we'll be happy to send you home because it community coming can see you at home. But now, they're stretched thin, they communi- you know, the visits are not as frequent, the more virtual mm-hmm. you've been here means you get the more support than you've been at home. So, yeah, it's a lot more <laughs> expectation. Yeah, absolutely, I can
2: understand that, definitely. Emma, any any thoughts on the managing patient expectations?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's been really interesting. Um, Like, I, I currently work in a, a stroke team, so, a stroke and a acquired brain injury team and with stroke Um, people who've had strokes, uh, there's very much this expectation that they will often get better much more quickly in the first sort of 12 weeks of their care, of their recovery. And so people want you like in their house all the time, every day, you know, and with the pandemic primarily, uh, that has been tricky because obviously you're trying to sort this out online. They're not set up for that. They don't, their friends and neighbours can't come around to help with that either um and also things like if you're somebody who needs like a physio and an ot and a psychologist and a speech therapist and a gmp all to be seeing you in a week much and all as you might want to see all those people every day you physically won't be you're too tired you're just not able to deal with that amount of people and it's really fascinating to watch people who come out and they're like i'm so ready for this i'm gonna do my rehab every day and after about a week and a half and they're like yeah no if you don't come tomorrow like that's fine <laughs> um, so it's been a really it's it's interest just i think in this space that i work in at the moment the patient expectations and family expectations that's a bigger part of it for me as well as you know family wants certain things from you and and sometimes you just have to be really realistic with them um but I have to say it has been a little chip I've been able to use in terms of encouraging more virtual working if I say to people if you can get online I can see you more often because I don't have to travel to your house and they're like oh I'll just see if my son can put me on his you know phone and magic," jig and I'm like yeah great um so yeah um there are expectations but I think you just have to be exactly what Doreen said you have to be honest with people and say look in the light of the current situation we're in, these are the tools that I have to work with and I'm so happy to share them with you, but this is all I have. Um, mm. And just kind of going with that because exactly it's, you know, we know the hospitals are under pressure, we're under pressure, the patients are under pressure, they're, everyone is under pressure. So you do get this very amplified level of expectation. But also then people are like, you guys are working so hard and you just take time and we wish we could give you a cup of tea and we can't, we're really sorry. Um, So people have been really amazing as well this year. I have to say I've felt really touched and just the odd person being like, thank you so much. It's just like you leave and you're like, oh my God, (laughs) this is the best day ever. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Yeah,
2: and and that goes back to um, comments about so just wanting to work with people, I think, Dr. Amrita's, you know, just really enjoying working with people. Um, Yandra, I, I wanted to ask you, have there been any expectations as, um, as you've been doing the, your, the, the vaccination? Has anybody expected something, or has everybody been sort of following it as, as they should generally?
4: You get a whole bunch of different type of people. You know, on one spectrum, there are patients who are so thankful to be, to be receiving the vaccine. And on the other hand, you get people saying, oh, I think this is a, this is a conspiracy theory. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, well, why are you selling my chair then? You know, I think it really does swing both ways. And ultimately, because we've got two approved vaccines in the UK, sometimes we'll have a patient walking in and they'll say, absolutely, today I'm receiving the AstraZeneca. And you're like, well, actually, unfortunately, you don't get a choice. And then you're in this kind of like moral dilemma between, OK, you're 80 years old. Do I really let you go because... You don't want the other one, but really you should be vaccinated because of your age. So I think it's brought about a whole different kind of kettle of fish of how we manage these patients who A, want one thing, um, B, they're not going to you know basically get what they want, but really we know they should be vaccinated. So mm. it's been a real fine line between trying to manoeuvre these patients who are somewhat difficult in that respect, because I'd say the 90, 98% of patients are so happy to receive it the two percent are, are questionable um and they'll really kind of make your morals questioned because you don't want to be rude as well but equally you really do question that their, their thinking behind it so it's, it's been very
2: interesting mm, absolutely i'm sure definitely um so i was thinking if you could um dr amrita if i could ask you um can you perhaps remember the time when you first started in your career um and just talk us through a little bit about how you found that experience um your first role um how you found the whole experience of actually uh, of getting the job was it was it tough um was it very competitive how did you find it
5: um so are you talking as an f1 doctor or are you talking as qualified as a gp
2: um f1 doctor and then perhaps as your thoughts as a gp
5: sure okay so um as an f1 doctor it's a very strange process i, d- I don't know how it works anymore um as think- in a vague idea but um it's a it's a bit of a different process and um, now but essentially you do your exams um depending on how well you do depending on where you rank um you do your foundation application form mm-hmm. and you place your hospitals um and you get ranked according to how well you do and that's literally it there's no interview there's no um you know what are your strengths what your weaknesses does this hospital fit you and your desires for your future career um would you be a good fit for you know just there there's nothing like that at all it's mapping there you literally. go <laughs> yeah. But basically, um, and so you could have had a really bad couple of days when you're sitting your final exams, Um, you could have had a terrible event, you could have had a bereavement, you could have had, you know, really sad news, and not unfortunately fulfill your potential, um, your academic potential, I mean, because there are lots of different potentials, um, your academic potential in your exams, and unfortunately, therefore, that maps out where you're going to go for your foundation years. And so Ooh. it's a really tricky process. Um, I was lucky. I was very lucky. I got I got my first choice job, my first choice hospital. Um, a lot of my friends didn't. And that was heartbreaking for me to see, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a very empathic person. So for me, I feel other people's difficulties. So for Ooh. me, that was heartbreaking to see my friends, my colleagues, those who I've seen struggle, you know, going through medical school it's a difficult um it's, it's a difficult five years like like any um vocational training is uh, or professional training should i say is it, you know it's a hard slog and seeing people who you have developed a professional relationship with over five years not get um what they deserve um isn't very fair um mm. so yes it, it isn't very easy so that would be foundation i yanya would be able to yanja sorry would be able to tell us um whether it's changed much i don't think it has changed much um that um I think that that's the process that we're in at the moment. I think there's there's a lot of talk about change and a lot of talk about differential attainment in medicine, and how we can minimise um, the dif- the differences between cohorts and how we can widen participation. Um, as these conversations need to be at the forefront of our minds, at the forefront of every agenda, we need to be breaking down these barriers, increasing and um, participation from all co- cohorts, from all, all communities, and from all. Ag- educational backgrounds um, I'm a strong advocate for that um but it's just it takes it it takes decades to turn an art tanker.
2: yeah of course fair enough um so that was your experiences there and so as a GP
5: so as a GP things are very different it depends on where you want to go what you want to do whether you want to be a portfolio GP like I am or if you want to go straight into partnership um, so for me I have really very much taken the road untravelled um, I don't really know many people who've done what I've I don't know anyone who's done exactly what I've done um, and I don't know anyone who um, has kind of done things in a bit of an odd mismatch way um, and every time people ask me what's your plan I say I don't have one and it's, I genuinely mean that I don't have a plan. And I don't mean that in a way that I am not ambitious or I'm not, um, and I'm not particularly ambitious. I don't mean ambitious in terms of, you know, evidently i don't have a plan so one might think that that means i'm not ambitious um but I, I genuinely do things because i love to do them and i know that sounds really funny it's like you can't go through your life just doing things because you love to do them but i really do and and i think that if you build your career around the things that you love to do then work isn't work it's play um and i really think that 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 would again be my message to students nobody really told me this at the beginning um and i suppose you know I'm sitting here with a smile on my face because I learned the hard way. Um, but my, one thing that my dad always, my, I was in my first year of medical school when my father passed away and that was the biggest loss to me. Um, but the lessons that you know he taught me and the conversations that we had, I think about every day. And he was such a positive influence in my life that really, I just think life is so short, you really have to make of it what, what you can. Um, so why should I spend time doing something that doesn't bring me joy and happiness? Um, when we don't, you know, when when I was 23 and my father passed away. So that, that's how I see things. Um, you know, I've just built a career around the things that I love. So yes, it's been very hard. Yes, it's been grueling. Yes, people have asked me and questioned me, why are you doing this? Why have you taken that decision? What's your plan? And it's hard when, when you say, I don't have one. It's hard because then you question yourself. You think, should I have a plan? Mm, I'm not sure, should I? And then you go back to the drawing board and you think, oh, let me devise a plan. And like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. So stick to your guns, stick to your goals, understand your principles and values, and don't let anyone else shake that, is what I would say. Sorry, a very convoluted answer again to your very simple question.
2: That's fine, that's absolutely fine. That's some really insightful, wise words there. So thank you so much, Dr. and Rita. Um, Yanja, do you think you could uh, perhaps talk us through perhaps your experiences so far with regards to um, going and you know uh, as Dr Amrita was commenting on um, the processes um, within the medical field of, of applying. Of
4: course um, I think everyone's top priority is to get into med school, but no one really tells you what it's like during med school and then after med school. And as Dr. Amrita was saying, we have this really convoluted application form which you do in your final year. Uh, And basically it's to ensure that different people of different academic achievements are sent all across the country. Um, And it's actually been, I wish someone had also told me at the beginning of my medical degree that actually, When you get to final year, you really may not be where you want to be in terms of location, in terms of what kind of jobs you're going to do for the next two years. Um, So I think it's just been really interesting, and especially having people in the few years above me who did it. um, You know, it's just been it's I think I was slightly better suited because I'd had a lot of senior input from people who'd done it the year or two years before me. Um, And I think having that kind of senior support is really interesting because then you can kind of navigate your way around what they thought was best or their mistakes that I made. But I think medicine is is just in a is really very different to all other professions, especially the way the application process works. And so I think, yeah, I just think having someone who's done it before you is probably the best
2: way to navigate medicine. I think doing it alone completely is, is quite tough. Would you uh, advise students to sort of get in touch with perhaps UCL alumni or perhaps um, reaching out to other friends that might be in the, the slightly
4: higher? Yeah, definitely in terms of what studying medicine is like, then what. You know, being in medicine in the future is like with Dr. Amrita because really, I can say what I can say, but I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know where I, I don't know where I'll end up. I find out in March, so I hope I get my first choice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just I think definitely getting true, honest experience of what it's like. None of this, you know, oh, I think medicine's amazing, but whilst it is, what are the hardships? You know, how did you struggle, or where did you find it difficult? And I think just being able to frankly talk to people about it is the best way to see if,
2: if that's for you, really. Mm, definitely. Absolutely. Thank you ever so much. Um, Emma, How what was it like for you when you first started um, or you applied for a role within your
1: government? Um, I actually got my first job off LinkedIn. Um, it's where my first job came from. Um because like that, I had I'd had this knee surgery, so I couldn't work for my first bit. So I spent a lot of time putting together my like LinkedIn profile and like doing all this other stuff. And and the way you get a job as a allied health professional typically is that it is interviews. Um and they do banding. So you have band five job is what you get when you graduate. Um and there's an NHS jobs portal and that's typically where you get a job, but this woman in a, a pri- who had set up her own private speech therapy company was like, "I really like the look of your CV. I am looking to recruit a new band five. Like, would you be interested?" I was like, "Yes." <laughs> um, and so I interviewed for that. She put me through my paces. I will say, private practice was, I think I I, um, what's the word? Like I deep ended it, but I I swam. I did did quite well for it, but it was a really tough job for a couple of years. But I. I wasn't unsupported but it was a tricky post um so yeah so my first job came from LinkedIn and I yeah it was it was great um but after that I had worked and I kind of thought I'd done community and outpatients and things and I really wanted to get to grips with a hospital so then I then applied to um uh, the Royal London um and got a, a band six role there Um, And then I suppose just to say as well, in allied health professionals, particularly physio and OT, sometimes in dietetics, um, they do rotations. So you will rotate through lots of different specialities. Um, Speech therapy, we are really bad at doing that. (laughs) Um, So my career has had lots of I have just effectively rotated myself. So I will do like a year somewhere. I'll take like a maternity leave or do something like that and it was such a good way for me to build up my skills really quickly because i then went on to take a band seven role much sooner than a lot of people that i graduated with because i was good and i you know i went for it that was the other that would be my other piece of advice just go for it just see what happens just you know take the opportunities when they arise because a friend did point out to me at the time when i got my first start say like, you sure you want to trust someone who like offers you a job randomly off linkedin and i was like mm. You know, I took it and it worked out well. So, um, yeah, so I think my advice would be to just, yeah, take those opportunities when they come because you just have no idea where they are going to take you. Um, Yeah. And uh, was
2: it a, a difficult interview? Do you remember or was it?
1: Yeah, it was. She most, if I was interviewing a band five now, we would anticipate it takes about 40 minutes. I'm pretty sure I was in that room for an hour and a half. It was, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was intense, but she held things to a very high standard. Um, But I would also say um, I've been very lucky uh, with interviewing. I, I haven't not got an interview, which has been really awesome. Mm. Um, But having been on both sides of the panel, I I think it's really good to do interviews um because I just think they do build up your a your resilience so if you get told no that's okay and you can work on that and get feedback um but also again yeah you just get more used to it and you get less afraid of the people on the other side of the table so like most people do interviews and don't get them and that's that's absolutely fine, you learn a lot and always ask for feedback. I think that's something that we're a bit afraid to do, but always ask for feedback. Doreen is nodding at me furiously. I can see. Um, yeah, so I don't know Doreen, if you have any feedback on an interview.
3: Yeah, I think um, the first band seven points I applied for Royal London, um, I think they say just to practice a bit more on um, managing. And yeah. I took on board for my next interview and I got the job. So yeah, definitely ask for feedback. It helps. Yeah. yeah.
2: Thank you. Doreen, how, how was your first interview when you remember after graduating? How did you find that? How was the process?
3: It was, it was quite hard. <laughs> um, so with midwives and nurses, we usually you, you apply for your job in your final year um, of training. Um, so when you're about six months to qualifying so when you usually start applying for jobs um in London in some hospitals so where I train at Kingston I'm university there's five different hospitals that we have our placements in so they're usually five that you apply for a job for sorry to begin with so if you're a student in one of those hospitals you're more likely to get an interview for those hospitals so um I got an interview for Kingston I thought yep I've made it but you had to do a maths and English test first. If you don't get more than 50%, you don't get an interview. Um, so I was really nervous. Um, so, yeah, I did my maths and English test. Then you go on to do the panel interview. Um, they ask you why you want to work there. And it could take about 40 minutes. Um, and you feel like, you know, I work with you guys. <laughs> you know me already. But yeah, you kind of have to sell yourself that you definitely want to work there. And I think as you want to progress in your career, they're all required so you might work in a place for five years and you won't get the job so yeah it's about going through it preparing yourself and building yourself up in
2: your career absolutely thank you so much dorian um you know all some really really great tips here um fascinating and i don't think anybody likes interviews i don't think anyone really loves them but i'd echo what emma says and i think it's 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 important to sort of practice them Um, and if students are concerned or want to you know, get some great tips and helps, obviously please do contact us at UCL Careers because we can help you with that, absolutely. Um, So just to let you know, we'll have uh, one more question and then we'll go to a few um, questions from the students. Um, I know Dr Amrita has to leave us shortly. So if any students have got um, any thoughts for Dr Amrita, please get them ready. Um, So I think we'll just do one more question and then we'll go straight to the students. Financial pressures are always talked about with regards to healthcare NHS for example would you say that there's a lot of constraint within your role zone Emma would you say that that is that sort of always you mentioned London's money perhaps only come out of out of London not so much
1: yeah it's 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 a tricky one because um like that haven't worked in the private sector as well so I think that puts a good comparison so um like when I worked in the private sector, I had a £2,000 training budget just straight, like that was just, you were just given that, like that wasn't even questioned. And then should you want any further training on top of that, you could ask for it. We all had our own laptops, we had access to iPads, we had all this sort of stuff. Um, Whereas in most of my NHS jobs, um, if I want a study day, I have to really have a chat with my manager about whether or not I am allowed the time off to attend that study day um, and mm-hmm. whether or not it integrates into, we have like um, PADRs, so like the personal development programs for the year. I have to really argue that it is gonna fit into that in some way. So there's there's a definite, um, it is a constraint to some respect, and then also now working in in Wales and living here, I know even more because I previously used to work for Central London Community Healthcare Trust. That's a big trust, and they get a lot of funding, um, because you've got like Kensington and Chelsea and Westminster are in that borough, in those in that trust, and so again, we had resources, and you know that's the same team that I had to argue for study days with. Um, we had our own laptops, we had our own smartphones, we had all those things. Uh, here, like I said, there are six laptops for 18 of us. Um, and that just, you have to work around it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's tricky because I think for me, I'm coming to that point now where my next upward movement is into either management or towards a more clinical academic career. I'm leaning towards the the latter. Um, but I do, I see it more now. I just see how much like if we lose a member of staff, do we take that money f- to fund that member of staff or do we put it into something else? Um, you know, it is it is there. And, and the more I'm into sort of service provision and service management, you start to really notice like, oh, actually the pot is only this big. Um, and, I there, you know, we do have a question around, do we tell people how much their care costs? This is something that comes up sometimes for like missed appointments and things like that, but I, I'm not sure actually how I feel about that, but it's worth recognizing, you know, there is financial stress there. It doesn't affect my day too much because of the job I have in fairness, but it, it's there, you know? Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay, so that was that was amazing. Thank you so much for all your wonderful insight there. Um, I've opened up um, for students to be able to ask questions. For Dr Amrita, can you recommend opportunities, extracurricular activities that can help students find ways to support positive psychology and well-being in or outside the medical community?
5: oh that's a really good question um okay so there are loads of positive psychology resources the first thing i would say is look up martin seligman so martin seligman that's s-e-l-i-g-m-a-n so he's essentially the father of positive psychology um And he has done a lot of work over the last three decades around positive psychology, what it is exactly, um, why it's important and how we can use it to help us grow, essentially, and help us be happier, better, brighter human beings. Um, The first thing I'd do is direct you to him. Um, He has a wealth of resources on his website and also... um, just learning about him is really interesting. Um, learning about the theories that he's founded and the research behind those theories is really interesting too. Um, and then a few kind of other key people off there, I would say, look at Robert Biswas-Dina. So that's B-I-S-W-A-S and then Dina it's hyphen Dina, D-I-E-N-E-R um, or Kristen Neff. So Kristen Neff has done a lot of work around, um, not positive psychology, but things like empathy and compassion in clinical work specifically. So I would say, if you're interested in those types of fields specifically, look them up. Um, Lovely. you see I'll have my yeah. So if you wanted to get in contact with me, you can contact the careers service and they can kind of get in, get in touch with me through that way if that's okay.
2: Yeah, I'll share my email and then I can um, take some queries for you Dr. Marita, absolutely. Um, I've got a question here. Uh, Thank you for your talk, Dr. Amrita Nyanja. I wonder what made you pick your medical speciality and any tips for current medical students on how to decide?
5: Mm, Okay, so I was one of those people who, so if I knew my husband when I was at university, I would not have married him. And the reason I say that is because I was the person in the front row and here's the person at the back throwing things at the people at the front. I was one of those people who was always like having my hand up and asking questions and getting immersed and, and everything so what I would say is that when I was at medical school I immersed and I know that it's a really different situation now so I'm really sorry that this is just my experience I immersed myself in every rotation that I was in I, I spoke to consultants I networked I just spoke to people all the time I was just like this sponge wanting to learn all the time and I suppose that was how I collected all the information that I needed to decide whether I wanted to um, go into one specialty or not. Um, The other thing that I had the advantage around was the fact that I've come from a medical background. So both of my parents were doctors um, and my father was a GP. So I grew up around general practice. I was the village doctor's daughter. So I always knew essentially that that would be my home and I would come back full circle. Um, But I wanted to try and keep my horizons open so essentially for me that was my journey but i would say that keep your options open be like a sponge try to learn from everybody everything is a learning opportunity so i go back to my original point where i said when i had my mentorship at the investment bank that was brilliant brilliant experience i learned a lot from that gentleman who was my mentor but one thing i took away was i don't want to do this so even if it is taking away that that isn't right for you that's your takeaway
2: so essentially just giving it a go, giving it a try, can clarify what you do like and what you don't. Much more succinct, yes. (laughs) That's okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Amrita. I really appreciate it. I think you have to, I think you're signing off shortly, aren't you?
5: I I am. I'm very, I do apologise. I'm sorry that I was late in today and I'm sorry that um, I'm uh, leaving. I suppose this is the nature of the pandemic and and we all have to learn to be flexible with one another. So thank you, UCL. We
2: really appreciate that. And obviously, um, any any questions to yourself? um, I'll share my email address with the students so they can I can send it to them. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Marita. Okay, so um, with uh, the rest of the questions, I've got a few here, but students should be able to. I know one student said they wanted to try and um, unmute themselves, but they couldn't. But do try now, uh, if you like, and hopefully that should be okay for you. But if, whilst we're waiting, I'll just, I've got one here. This may be a tough question, but do you find it hard to balance your work-life balance? Um, I've got here, as an, I think, being empathetic with a strong family connection. It is a concern. I'd struggle to prioritise that connection for myself when connected to people. So I think we'll take the first one first. Do you find it hard to balance your work-life? Um, Doreen, do you find it hard? I might take that one to you.
3: I think, um, initially I did, um, when I first started, um, working, um, I'm quite family oriented, so I'm quite close to, you know, my family, um, lived at home for a long time. Um, but I do like diaries. I like to schedule in, um, my work time (laughs) and personal time and going out time i think that's really important to do so what i do in a week is when i used to do shift work i work three days a week and that's my three days dedicated to work um i scheduled maybe one day a week with a family and i have a day to myself so (laughs) no phone calls nothing with anyone just a day to yourself to reflect and just recuperate if he's in bed if he's watching movies i chose that one day for myself and i try to schedule in times with other friends and um kind of family members maybe every two weeks we'll go out and do something different i know it's different with the pandemic um, but you can show maybe zoom calls zoom quizzes but do take time every week and just create a timetable for yourself so you know what you're doing each week. I think it's okay sometimes if you find a hard day to say look I've had a really hard day I just need a few minutes to myself for just a few hours or just this evening to myself alone. Um, I think don't be afraid to speak to your phone about what you're going through Um, and just say it's been a hard day just give me a few moments to myself but yeah do schedule in fun times. Uh, my mum will tell you I know how to treat myself <laughs> Um, so yeah just take <laughs> a day, a week at least just for you Um, just to sort of could in the week that you've had. That's
2: my advice. Fantastic, that's really good. Um, uh, I've got a um, question here from a student. I'm doing a psychology degree and I'm graduating this year. I want to see what the job is like before committing to a master's program. Is it possible to get a speech and language therapy assistant job with my degree? If so, could you give me any tips about what would help me get this job? So I presume we're directing that one to Emma. That was yeah. quite a few questions there. I'm yeah.
1: No, um, you can get a, it is possible to get a speech and language therapy assistant job. Um, it depends. Some places will be like speech therapy only. So they, those jobs do exist. You can equally get a, like a rehabilitation assistant role. Um, and depending on, on what you kind of want to do, they're sort of nice because you get to see like, you could be assistant to psychology, to OT, to physio, to speech. And so, if you're just looking to get a bit of a taste of sort of allied health professional, a rehab assistant job is quite nice. Um, but they do definitely have speech therapy only assistant jobs, and they're really good for college, for university applications to becoming a speech therapist. They really, if they see that on there, it's a really big plus um, for that. Um, also anything that is involved with like volunteering with like the stroke association or there's lots of children's charities that um, work with children from um, lots of different backgrounds or who have like autism or delayed um, upbringings and like lots and lots of different things that you can do so um, equally I'm super happy to share um any of my details if anyone wants to just have a chat around what that might look like or any help around sort of applications for jobs or anything I'm super happy to help with that
2: oh lovely that's very kind of you thank you so much Um, so I've got a question for Doreen here Um, Doreen thank you so much for your really helpful insight into midwifery I'm just curious to learn a little more about the interview process and type of work experience I can get before I'm applying for the course I'm currently a psychology undergraduate student, but I'm hoping to take a master's pre-registration course once I graduate. Any tips or uh, or thoughts of where this this student could possibly go towards?
3: Um, I would probably say have a look around your local hospitals um, and just um, make contact with their practice education team. Um, They're usually good at maybe organising students to come in for work experience um, or just to a day to shadow um, midwives or doctors on the ward. Um, Again, I'm not sure how quickly they respond to the pandemic going on, but I think it's worth a try. Um, In terms of interviews, um, I think like with Emma, I'm happy for you to get in contact with me so we can go through some interview tips. Um, There's a drug calculation book that I use that I recommend to all students that come in contact with because you have to do a math and English test um, for every interview even once you've gone through the course and you're um, applying for a job so yeah I'm more than happy to have that with you and um, depending where you live again I can ask my practice educator team if they have anything going on so I can also try and support you with that if I can.
2: That's really kind thank you so much and where would you where would you suggest that they look because you said contact your local hospitals but I imagine
3: that um.
2: Think,
3: very easy at the moment to walk around with COVID. Um, The best thing we, to do <laughs> is probably maybe just call maybe like the labour team and see if they can get you through to the um, same maternity education team, PDM they usually call. I think that's the best way because if you try and go through the main hospital, they might not um, be able to direct you through. If you can't get through to labour, then maybe try the switchboard um, for the hospital and ask for a maternity unit and hopefully someone there can maybe support you with that.
2: Lovely, thank you ever so much, Doreen.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, question for Yanja: um, I'm planning on taking a year out after my degree, and I'm really considering applying to a graduate medicine degree. And I wanted to know if there were any things I could sorry anything I could do to get the feel of the career. Hospital placements are quite hard because the pandemic. Unfortunately, my background is in public health. Any thoughts on that one, Yanja?
4: Um, Yeah, they are right. I think places at the moment are really tough because of the pandemic and they don't want any extra kind of people coming to the hospital than necessary. So I'd say my biggest advice at the moment is if you can and it's possible for you to join a bank staff so that you can potentially work as a healthcare professional. So that way you are paid for something that's within the hospital setting or even a general practice, but you're still able to really learn from something. Um, a lot of the times when it comes to applying for medicine and your personal statement and interview, you know, they don't really want to know, say per se, what you've done and how long you've done it for, but really what you've taken away from it. So, you know, it doesn't really matter that you've worked as an HCA or whether you've volunteered. I think as long as you're able to get something. But for the moment, I do know that the pandemic needs a lot of bank staff. Um, They're called what they're called turning teams. So you often turn patients around. um, And I think that could be a really good starting point um, so I know, for example, all the big trusts in London I'm currently hiring, so such as guys in St. Thomas's, King's, so I'd say get in contact with them, and then that would be a really good kind of, you know, quite a, quite a realistic feel for what the job will entail in the future. So I think that's a good starting point.
2: Fantastic. Lovely. Thank you. Okay, I'm a postgraduate student at UCL, Children and Adolescents Mental Health, and I'll be graduated in September when do you think it's the right time to start searching for a job having in mind i do not have any practical experience in the field yet Uh, but any thoughts on that from any of you
1: i think i would say like just as soon as really um particularly if you are someone that has got um like um anything else sort of going on in your life like you know there's a pandemic going on at the moment so everything is, or or if you're someone who has got children, or if you're, you know, just, if you've got lots of stuff going on, I would always sort of advocate for just looking early. And, you know, people can be really afraid to just call, like, like what Doreen has just said, like just calling up the hospital can feel really daunting, but actually, that's the kind of time like that's the way to start making these connections with people like put your name into places and you don't necessarily have to get a a job right away in it if that's what you're wondering like when is a good time like maybe do like a couple of weeks experience somewhere maybe take on a temporary role like the bank staff as well that Yanja is talking about like doing bits and bobs like that but I would sort of say like whenever you're ready to start applying for jobs go ahead and apply for jobs (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's
2: wise words. Thank you. And obviously, at UCL Careers, we're here to help you. So if you need some help with the whole process, definitely. OK, uh, I think we'll wrap up with one more question. Her friend is a midwife and she's also suffered effects of the lack of staffing. Um, this this student's obviously being empathetic and supportive. Do you think there's anything in particular I can say to support her when she might be feeling burnt out? Oh,
3: Doreen, you're on mute. Sorry. Um, I'd probably, I would probably just say, um, just encouraging her that um, she's doing a good job. <laughs> That's usually um, quite encouraging. Um, just asking her what she wants. I think sometimes we try so hard to do stuff for people, might not just be what they need. So just ask her, what can I do to help? Um, sometimes just things to take their minds off, maybe a little game. But yeah, just ask her what is it that she really needs from you. Sometimes they don't want to talk about work or just anything else aside of work. But just ask her what, is, what would be helpful for you right now. Do you want to order some food? Should we watch a movie together? Just ask her what it is that they need. Because oftentimes, you know, you have a bad day and you just don't want to talk about <laughs> the bad that you've had. You just want to talk about something else. So yeah, I would probably
2: Lovely. That's really supportive. Thank you. Thank you so much to everybody. Really, really appreciate it. You've been a fabulous, fabulous panel. Got some real keen insights. And hopefully I feel that the students will have had the opportunity to put some questions to you and um, given you some sort of real key thoughts and tips. And you've given up your time today and time, especially, especially on the front line is so is, you know, it, it it's so such a small amount of time that you might have, so you know, I really, really appreciate it. Everybody's busy, everybody's juggling, so thank you, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Hopefully, the students have enjoyed it. Hopefully, everyone's had some great insight. And I would just like to say thank you so
0: much, and we'll end this panel now. Thanks, everybody.
3: Thank Take you care. for having me. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you
0: all so much for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed the discussions around the skills and experiences needed to get into the health sector, the challenges of working on the frontline, including the impact of COVID-19 and how the panellists have adapted. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you at the next UCL Careers podcast.